It is so good to be with you here. Uh, um, I hope that you're glad you're here. I sure am glad I'm here. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else at this, this point in, in, in the morning, Sunday morning, and, and be with you with God's people and, and, uh, and, and have a, a wonderful time in, in worship, Sunday school teaching, uh, the happenings that are going on with Vacation Bible School to talk about those. And then, um, and then now we get to, to share together in, in God's Word. And um, the, the, the title of the message this morning is The Renewing of Your Mind. The Renewing of Your Mind. And so this week, uh, my wife Sybil, she, she suggested that I preach on the, the verses that were memory verses for Vacation Bible School. Uh, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is the NIV version. Uh, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we're going to talk about those two verses this morning a little bit, and they are loaded, really. They They are loaded. So, uh, they would be good memory verses for us all. Uh, If you want to memorize a whole chapter, then Romans, the 12th chapter, would be a good one. 21 verses. If you do three a week, in seven weeks, you have the whole chapter memorized. Yeah, I like to break it down for you. So, 21 verses, Pastor. Okay. Um, So, I've challenged many people to uh, memorize Romans, the 12th chapter. Because Romans, the 12th chapter... It's a very practical chapter. You might speak about practical Christianity. There is doctrine that typically is dry, except for the theologians who want to, you know, dig into the scriptures and see what they're saying, whether or not they have a, a, a practical application. But practical Christianity always follows doctrine. And doctrine always precedes encouragement because doctrine without application is dry. But the practical without the doctrine is living without a compass. You're basically living on an opinion or somebody else's opinion or whatever. But living on the Word of God, you need the instruction of the Word of God and then the encouragement to go live it. Yes? Uh, so, I'm hoping I'll be short today. I've done that before, but uh, let us look at the scriptures then. Let's look at the scripture. Uh, we, what would you have on there? We have, uh, I'm thinking we'll put the NIV on there. Okay, we have the New King James. That's okay. That's okay. Um, uh, the, the NIV is truly a little bit better translation than the King James is in this scenario. Across the board, not. But in these two verses, especially in verse 2, it is a better translation, and I'll explain myself to you. So you don't think that I think that NIV is a better translation than King James. It's not. But in certain instances, it is. And we have to be truthful, even though you might be a King James fan or you might be an NIV fan, you know you have to know what is what, Right? Um, so, it starts with the word therefore. 
People have always told me, if you read the word therefore, find out what it's there for. Uh, and so Paul is saying, therefore, on the basis of some of the things that he has already talked about, and on the basis of what he's saying coming, he is saying, I want to encourage you to do something. I beseech you. I encourage you. I beg you if you want. I plead with you. I urge you, the NIV says. Uh, therefore, on the basis, he says, on the mercies of God, he has already talked about this, about, about the mercies of God. He, in, the, in uh, pretty much the first portion of Romans, the, the, the 12th chapter, he has, I'm sorry, uh, the book of Romans, before the 12th chapter, he has talked to us about doctrinal things in that we have uh, a problem as humankind. We have a sin problem. We are all sinners. No one exempt. Every one of us has broken the law of God. But God didn't leave us there. He found us a solution in Jesus Christ. And he sacrificed his son on the cross to pay the price that we otherwise would have to pay. And now we get to go free because his son, who was perfect and never sinned, paid the price for us. And he goes on and, on. and then he says the solution is that you receive this man, Jesus Christ, that you receive him by faith. And he gives examples of Abraham and them. And then he, in the fifth chapter-ish, uh, he talks a little bit about uh, therefore being justified by faith. He speaks about a justification over there. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, then he follows those chapters somewhat with the idea that now that you have been justified, yes, now that you have received Jesus Christ and you are a born-again, regenerated believer of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, then he is talking to us about then, now that you are born again, now that you have been justified, then you need to be sanctified. We typically talk about salvation, and we basically mean when we talk about salvation, we're talking about justification. We're talking about conversion. Somebody who has become a Christian. Somebody who has just recently experienced the born-again experience. Born of God. Not just of the flesh, but born of God. John, the first chapter in verse 12, and so it talks about 12, 13, 14-ish, talks about that. And uh, so, because God is not satisfied that we are born again. <clears throat> it is a miracle, but that is, in a way, in a way, in a way, it is a miracle, because only God can do that. It's a miracle, but in a way, it is the easy part. God does it. I just get to share with somebody about Jesus Christ, and they receive Jesus by faith. They're born again. 
Yes? Okay? But that, God is not just satisfied with that. God wants this person who has now been born again, he wants them to start walking like his son, Jesus Christ. If that was not the case, he would save this person from their sins and take them right straight to heaven. There's no more purpose here on earth. But it's a purpose to share his love with other people because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So he speaks here of the mercies. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, that is what the NIV says in some of the NIVs. Uh, he says, brothers and sisters, because the collective word in, in the old language, in the old King James, is brethren. That means brothers and sisters. If he says brothers, it talks specifically to the guys. If he talks sisters, he talks specifically to the girls or the ladies or the women. Uh, when he says brethren, he's talking about the, the men and the women who are, who are born again. So he says, he makes it clear over here, the NIV, brothers and sisters. He says, I urge you, I encourage you. The word urge, the word encourage here in the original language is the word parakaleo. Para means alongside. In my home country uh, of Suriname, the capital is Paramaribo. Paramaribo. Can you say Paramaribo? Paramaribo. Ah, you want to say Paramaribo. <laughs> Paramaribo. Para, para, and then it has the word Ribo, which stands for Rio. It is the city alongside the river. Paramaribo. Okay? So the Paracaleo means someone who comes alongside to, to encourage you. The word parakaleo has the same root as the word parakletos, or what you say in English, paraclete, or the Holy Spirit. So one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to encourage people, or you might say to convict people to walk more in the way as Jesus walked, and he, that Holy Spirit is willing to give us the power to do it. Are you with me? So, then, when Paul says, I urge you, he is saying to you and to me, he's saying to us, that I encourage you as the Holy Spirit would encourage you to, in view of the mercies of God, God's mercies, that he's already talked about in the previous chapters. So, this is on the basis of what God already has done for us. He says, let me encourage you. I encourage you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, to bring an offering of your body as a living sacrifice. So you say to God, what is an offering? It's something that you give to someone else, right? In this scenario, it is God. An offering then would be something you give to God. In this scenario, it would be your body. That you would bring your body to God and say, it is yours. It is yours to do with as you please. Well, unfortunately, in most Christian lives, it is easier said than done. I offer my body to you, Lord. 
And within five minutes, we're taking it back. And we go do as, as we please. Well, see, that is the problem with a living sacrifice. <laughs> In the Old Testament, there was a dead sacrifice. You place the sacrifice on the altar, it can't move. It's there. It's dead. But with a living sacrifice, the problem is, you bring the offering, but the living sacrifice wants to walk away. <laughs> A living sacrifice. A sacrifice nevertheless. A living sacrifice. Holy, holy is the word that means to set, to be set apart. And in this scenario, it is set apart. You have already offered it, so you have set it apart for God. But usually when you set something apart, you set it apart for something, from something. So you say to God, I am, I am offering my body and set it apart for you, from the world and from sin. Here it is. Do with my body as you please. My dear brothers and sisters, this is part of the biggest problem that we have. We're making an offering, or we say we're making an offering, and then we're taking it back. It's done so often. But Paul, knowing our predicament, knowing our circumstances, knowing our inclinations, knowing our leaning, knowing our bent, that we are sin-prone, he says... I want to encourage you. I beg you. I, uh, I think I told you this story before. My sons were planning to go bungee jumping. You know about bungee jumping? I can't stand bungee jumping. For one thing, I don't like heights. And secondly, that, that cord that you jump, or the rubber, the, the, elastic, the rubber band that you jump, uh, that takes you down like that? If God had put it there, I would have no problem bungee jumping, okay? But when man put it there, I got a problem. And sure enough, in one of the demonstrations, before the uh, uh, Super Bowl, that they were going to jump, bungee jump out of something, at one of the practices, somebody died bungee jumping. Are you familiar with that story? Well, I had a tennis student who had graduated from high school. She was going to study to be a doctor. And she came home uh, to Corpus Christi to, to take a lesson with me and train a little bit again. Uh, uh, um, and her father, whom I had talked about God for a long time and who was a, a very gifted surgeon, a brain surgeon no less, uh, he wanted nothing with God. Until... One time on a sailboat, he was in the middle of the ocean, and a storm broke out. You know about storms, sister? A storm broke out. And he looked around himself, and he saw nothing but water. Lots of it was white water. You know, when you have these waves, they make white water. The more white water, the more dangerous. And he saw that, and he thought to himself, 
unless you help me. <laughs> unless someone much bigger than me helps me, I am a dead man. And my boat will be on the bottom of the ocean. So he and I were talking. And I visited with him. And he says, how are your sons doing? Well, my sons, they, um, they're on their way to Austin to bungee jump. He says, don't let them. I'm a brain surgeon. I have tried to fix many brains that had no brains. Just for the fact, the proof was that they bungee jumped. So, he says, don't let them do it. Now, why did I tell you about that? (laughs) (laughs) So, when it comes to God, you know, when he says, don't do it. Don't do it. I, I called my sons and I said, Josh, Nate, you got to do this one for your father. Don't bungee jump. I'm sitting here with a surgeon right next to me. And he says, don't let him do it. Of course, I cannot let him or make him do anything. But I have two wonderful sons. And they knew when I say, don't do it, I mean it. Not that I was going to punish them in some form or fashion. Because when they're dead, there's no more punishment coming. I get the punishment. And they realized I was serious about it, that they, they didn't do it. And they were fine about it. It was not that they were griping about it. Oh, Dad, you, you blew out year. I have a bad year. They were just happy that I, I cared enough to let them know, guys, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it for me. So, uh, living sacrifice, holy, set apart for God, away from sin, pleasing to God. It becomes uh, a, a, a something that obviously is going to please God when you offer your body a living sacrifice and you leave it at the altar. Uh, and then, this is your true and proper worship. The... The King James reads is a little bit different, but what he is saying is that your commitment to the Lord becomes of such depth and meaning that it becomes almost like a sacred thing. It becomes almost like a worship that you have brought the offering of your body to God for Him to do what is pleased, what He's pleased to do with, and that is pleasing to Him that you did that. Verse 2, like I said, I'm trying to be a little short today, if I can make it. Verse 2, here is where the NIV translates it a little bit different and better than the King James. The NIV says, do not conform any longer. The King James says, be not conformed uh, to, 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 to the worldly things and so on and so forth. Be not conformed. It, the, the, the original language has this meaning that it says that you were doing something, but stop doing it. Are you with me? When you read, be not conformed, then it just 
it, it might, it might create, create in your mind the impression that you were not conformed in the first place, but he's just warning you, don't be conformed. No, you were conformed. Don't do it any longer. And it has also the meaning in there, in that word, that you are, do not conform to the pattern of the world, that what is in you is Jesus. It's not the world. So he says, don't act outwardly in some way that is not in correspondence with your inner being. And secondly, not representative of your inner being. So it is not in correspondence, it's not parallel into who you are on the inside, that is to say your outward, exp- your outward expression or your outward conduct, and it is not representative of who you are on the inside. So stop doing it. Stop conforming to the world. My dear brothers and sisters, this is, this is the crux of the matter in Christian life. We are so readily conformed and influenced by the world to do worldly stuff. So, now, it becomes an interesting question as to what does it mean, the patterns of this world? Well, it means a lot. But let me just suffice to say this way, that it has to do with the influence out there uh, of, let's call them, opinions and ambitions and aspirations and thoughts and hopes that are out there and are influencing you, but are not of God. Okay? And there's a lot of that out there that has the potential to come within the church. And often is the case. Shall I give you a couple of examples? Because you're wondering, okay, give me some examples of what you're talking about. Uh, well, let us talk about sex. The young people say, yes, Pastor, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> no, sex. The world's opinion about sex and the standards about sex are completely different than what we read in the scriptures. Completely different. And it sneaks into the church. That young people in the church think, it's okay. I don't have to be married to have sex. That is just one example. Uh, I'll give you another example. What example can I give you? Um, Jesus says that in the kingdom of God, the leaders, they serve the ones that they lead to the extent that they wash their feet. He says in the world, the leaders, they lord it over the ones they're leading. But not so in my kingdom. In my kingdom, a leader is a husband. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because my next thought was husbands. <laughs> I was going to go to the husbands. The leaders are servants. They wash the people that they lead. They wash their feet. Husbands. Now I'm coming to you. If you're going to lead your wife, it's not because you are a dictator. That is the world. In the kingdom of God, you wash her feet. 
It doesn't look necessary that she has barefoot and that she put soap and stuff. That is included. Well, you might be a lotion or something. You know, it's included. But it is that you're washing her feet in, in, in activities and, and, and caring for her. On and on and on. The parents of the world are not the parents of the kingdom of God. And Paul is admonishing us, stop doing that. Stop being conformed to the parent of the world. He says, there must come a transformation. A transformation. So, but he says, remember this word but over here? It's a big word. It's a big word because it brings a, a, an opposite. Maybe from the negative to the positive, or the positive to the negative, or the small to big and big to small, or whatever. It brings a contrast. So he says, do not be conform, or don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, a transformation needs to take place. Remember a guy named Don Babin? He ministers to the Maasai tribe. And one of the slogans that he has for the Maasai tribe, and for us to know what he wants to do for that, is total tribal transformation. He wants the Maasai to be transformed so they are no longer the poorest tribe in Kenya, or for that matter, maybe in Africa. He wants them to be transformed so they don't have to walk for hours and hours and hours for, to graze their cattle and the goats. Excuse me. They want them to also have water. They also want them to have uh, uh, agriculture. They didn't know that, well, I'm, I'm sure many of them do, but some of the people that we've worked with, they didn't know they put something in the, in, in the ground that something comes out of the ground growing. Put a seed in there, something grows. After a little while, poof, there it is. They didn't know that, so we're teaching them. Well, now, I don't know anything about agriculture, but we're trying to get people to them that know about agriculture that are teaching them. So now you have several pastors and several Christian brothers. They have what they call shambas, what they call a garden, but it's a bigger garden than the one that you have behind your house, uh, you know, from here to here to here to here, and with a couple of tomato plants. And, and, but, so it's not just a little garden. It is basically five-acre garden. Okay? They plant, and the stuff comes up. Guess who finds out about it? What they call over there, the zebras. We call them zebras. They find out and they come eat their stuff. So now, we learn, you need to put a fence around the thing. <laughs> a fence around it. And then now, the, the zebras can get it. The elephants can, but they, they, they don't come eat that stuff. <laughs> the elephants can get whatever they want. <laughs> um, so... What you have then is, uh, yes, now this particular passage is Daniel. I'm sure that Don will talk about Daniel when he comes next over here. And I will be with him this coming week in Spokane, Washington with Terry Little who comes over here. And um, um, we're preaching over there and, and sharing over there with, with, with some groups. And, um, and I'm sure that Don will talk to you about the Shambas when he comes over here. And Pastor Daniel who has now 10 acres, and he, 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 he grows corn. And then the last thing that they wanted was for them to have a machine that would, how you call it when you peel the corn? Husk, or husket, husket, is that what you call it? Uh, husker, 
Okay, so a machine, $600, that way he could that much faster get his corn to the market and to, to, to give it away. And he's training other Maasai, a transformation is taking place. As little as it is, it yet it goes faster because more of the Maasai folks are finding out about it. Oh, he went to the market. Oh, he made some money. I want to make some money. So they come and they learn to make shambas and to plant some stuff and so on and so forth. He talks about total transformation. He doesn't just want them to have Jesus. He wants Jesus to have them also. And he wants to bring things about that um, are conducive to, to like what they have. And they like that they can plant corn and have more income. That they can also share with others and with their children and with their flock as pastors and so on and so forth. So a transformation must be taking place over here. And he says, this transformation, because you always wonder, well, how does the transformation take place? The transportation, transformation takes place by the renewing of your mind. This is the typical scenario of garbage in, garbage out. You put in the garbage, and the garbage comes out. That's just the way it is. You cannot be watching Playboy and thinking that you renew your mind concerning the kingdom of God. How does that work? So, you need to have a certain diet. You have to, a certain amount of input. Not diet as in rice and beans, but diet as, as to feed your spiritual man. A, a certain diet, a certain input for the right output. For the right stuff to come out. Um, you know, I don't know much about this stuff, but somebody mentioned that you need to have a metabolic change. A metabolic change. That is to say, you know, some people struggle with, with their skin sometimes, right? Yes? And what they try to solve their skin problem with is put junk on their skin. Yes? But in many instances their skin would be cleared if they would eat differently. If they would have a metabolic change, that their metabolism would be different, that they would metabolize stuff that is good for their body, and so therefore it would reflect in the skin. My dear brothers and sisters, what I have noticed is that so many of us Christians, we have bad skin. Figuratively speaking. Yes? Because we have the wrong diet. We put garbage in. Then we wonder why we have skin that is unhealthy. But what we do is we try to cover it up with some stuff. 
And I find this to be true among us many Christians. They cover it up instead of changing the diet. You need Bible diet. You need kingdom diet. You need to put the right stuff in and think about the right stuff instead of thinking and putting in the wrong stuff. Because if you put the wrong stuff in, there is not going to be a transformation because there won't be the kind of renewing of the mind that Paul is speaking of over here. Oh, uh, Then, you remember, I like that word, but over here, because it, it gives a contrast. Then you have another important word over here. Then. Do this, then that. He says, if you do this, you get the uh, transformation by the renewing of your mind. He says, then you will be able. Then you get an ability to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this is more or less what, what, what Paul is saying over here. Then, if you do this, there's a transformation. You stop being conformed to the pattern of this world. There's a transformation that is taking place by the renewing of your mind. Then you get the ability to test and approve what God's will is. Well, don't you know lots of people that want to know God's will? Yes? I thought I got, yes, pastor, yes. yes. I mean, I would say most people that I talk to, and I talk to a lot of people, a ton of people, a ton of people I talk to, whether it is one-on-one or whether it is in a group setting, tons of people I talk to. And most of them want to find out God's will for their life or God's will in a certain matter. Somebody, Cameron, is going to go to to college, I'm sure, and then he's trying to find out, okay, where should I go to college? Where do you want to go to college? You don't, you don't know yet? Okay. Oh, you're, you're too young. You don't have to even worry about it. But I thought, knowing Cameron, that he's already probably prepared where he wants to go. Somebody says, I want to go to the University of Texas. I want to go to AM College Station. I want to go to AM Corpus Christi. I want to go to Baylor or whatever. But doesn't it make sense that God would have you go to a certain place that is in his will? Is he not a God of order? And detail, so that if you want to go to a certain place, maybe that's not the place to go. Maybe God has a better place for you. Well, I didn't know about God when I came to college. I just came because I got a scholarship. But God knew I was going to come over here. When I came over here, I found my bride. <laughs> Woo-hoo! All right. <laughs> yeah. 45 years, baby. Amen. And this is not 45 years like 45 years. <laughs> Where is it over? <laughs> no. This is 45 years, and I want 45 more. Like that. 
and the pattern where we're going. It was not always straight up like that. Of course, yeah, everybody who's married knows that, you know, there's ziggy-zaggies over here. But, I mean, the general direction is, oh, yeah. Praise the Lord. So, he says here now, you're going to be able to test and approve what God's will is. And when you, when you have done these things, then you get to be experiencing God's will. And you get to test it, and then it will prove itself. You approve it. That it is good and pleasing and perfect. Good and pleasing and perfect, his will. Some of us, we so rarely experience his will. Because we have not renewed our minds. Our minds are still in the world. We try to love our wives with our mind being in the world. We try to love our children with our minds being in the world. And we're talking, as Christians, we're talking to our children about being a servant leader. Oh, really, Dad? Where is the servant? We see the leader. But where's the servant leader? Where is it? That you prefer your children over yourself. Well, some people have an easier time preferring their children over themselves than their wives over themselves. The kingdom of God. We need a metabolic change, a diet change. And we need a renewing of our minds, my dear brothers and sisters. And you don't get it by listening or looking at garbage. For heaven's sakes, protect your heart. Protect your eyes. Protect your ears from the garbage that's out there. Some of it you can't help but catch. But a lot of it you don't have to catch. You don't have to allow it in your house. You don't have to allow it in your church. You don't have to allow it in your life. In particular, when you're prone to give in to certain temptations, certain worldly things. If you have a problem with it, don't go near it. Now, that doesn't deliver you from it, but at least you don't have to do it. And then you're hoping and praying that as you're praying and God is helping you, that God will deliver you from the desire of those lousy things. You have basketball stars and football stars that like to be stars, not for the money they're making, but for the women that they can sleep with. What kind of thinking is that? That is straight from the world. That's worldly thinking. And not only that, then they brag about how many. Isn't that crazy? How about just one?
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, the Rabbi says, in view of God's mercy or mercies. Some people use it as a collective name or this as about these different mercies. In view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You don't ever have to worry about God's will for you. It is good, pleasing, and perfect. It is not like suspect. Well, God's will is suspect. It's good, pleasing, and perfect. And he loves you, and he has the best in mind for you. The best in mind. Or let me put it this way. His best in mind for you. Let us stand.